Hey guys, welcome to the Now It's Dark movie podcast. Here with me, Mike, and I'm joined by my buddy, Tim, <laughs> who's also here with me. Uh, it's the first time that we're doing this after the 24th Busan International Film Festival. Yeah, we've done uh, previous sort of wrap-ups, reviews of Biff in the past, and we thought we'd do another one this year, That's talking right. about uh, Asia's largest film festival. I yeah. mean, it's it's amazing to think that the largest film festival in Asia is just kind of right in our backyard. Yeah, it was a pretty big one this year as well. Some of the guests, some of the celebrities that were there were Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, I, right. saw, I saw him at a press conference and then uh, went to the big red carpet event for his movie, The King. Right. I also got a photo with Pak Chanuk. Oh, I'm so That's jealous right. of that. <laughs> yeah, I just it was nice. I just went up to him and just asked him as he was eating and just hanging out with his crowd of about five or six people. And I guess maybe maybe he just sort of realizes that it's just part of his life, part of yeah. his gig, is that he's got to take pictures with people. And he was very nice about it. He seemed very friendly. Yeah. I joined a program called Platform Busan, which is for filmmakers. Yeah. And we got to see some really cool sort of talks, including one by Park Chanuk. Yeah. There was another one by uh, Koryda Hirokazu, the great Japanese director. Yeah. And it was just so cool listening to them talk about their craft and kind of give insights, share stories. I mean, uh, Koryda talked about hanging out with uh, Ho Shaoshen. <laughs> uh, Park Chanuk talked about, you know, talking with his his composer and, and how to communicate your ideas to people in other fields. Like, how do you communicate, you know, uh, if you're not a musician, an idea to a composer? And how yeah. do you kind of speak their language or, or get on the same wavelength with, with them? And I found his talk really interesting. Yeah, Corrado was here for his new movie, The Truth, although uh, Pac, right. was, Pac was just here for Old Boy because they were doing that Korean movie retrospective of 100 years of Korean cinema. Yeah, it's amazing that on the 100th year anniversary, of, I guess, of Korean cinema, you know, Parasite wins the Palme d'Or. Yeah. It's, it's so fitting. Very significant. And even though Bong, Bong Joon-ho wasn't here, he still appeared at uh, one of the screenings for Parasite kind of live via Skype or something. That's right. On the big on the big uh, big screen uh, where that movie was showing. Uh, I also had the opportunity to interview Costa Gavras, the Academy Award winner and Palme d'Or winner, and that was a really fantastic Also interview. extremely jealous of that. Yeah, and uh, Agnieszka Holland, who did Europa, Europa, and In Darkness. Cool. And she was here for her new movie, Mr. Jones. So as far as the people who were there... It was a really great time. I, I had a wonderful time uh, meeting with people and talking with people. But yeah, of course, you and I saw plenty of movies in 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 uh, uh, just a few days. We also saw Joker before it started. Yeah, that was when that was what we saw first. So that's kind of that was sort of the movie that kicked off our Biff. Well, the the Korean release dates for some big American movies were a little bit different than you know in the states and other countries. Yeah. So. In the week leading up to Biff, I actually watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh -huh. and Joker yeah. and then saw 20 films at Biff right. in about a week. Yeah. So it's just been a lot of, I guess, sitting in theaters watching movies, which yeah. I'm not complaining about at all. No, no, that's right. So, I, yeah, I think I got, to, uh, I got to 19 total movies between October 2nd and October 11th because I didn't go to the last day. I watched Joker before it started, and then in the middle of it all to prepare for my Costa interview, I watched Missing. Nice. So uh, that was uh, that was just a good time. A good time was had by all. Yeah, and this year's Biff saw overall fewer movies being screened, but more countries being represented. Uh -huh. I believe last year we had 323 films from 79 countries, okay. which is pretty incredible. This year we had 299 films, but 85 countries. Interesting. Represented. I thought, okay, I think originally it was something like 303, but I know they canceled a few. Yeah, a few filmmakers either dropped out or couldn't get their films in. There were various reasons why it Or why were happened. Chinese and had their movies pulled. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Hey, let's get to some of the movies that we saw. I know that we like to rank the movies that we that we go see all the time. Yes, and before we make our ranking, I just kind of want to point out some, some major omissions at this year's Biff. Some yeah. movies that I was hoping to see and was pretty disappointed that you know they weren't in the lineup. Okay. Uh, probably the first for me, the biggest one for me is The Lighthouse. Mm. Uh, I'm just so excited to see that film. You know, by the director of The Witch. It's got Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe. And that's it. And that's it. <laughs> and the trailer looks incredible. Yes. It seems to be another sort of great entry in the horror genre. We've seen so much great horror in recent yeah. years. I'll agree with you. That's that's the most disappointing movie that wasn't there. That yeah. was the one I was scouring for. When they first announced the lineup back in September, 
That was one that I was scouring the website for, and it wasn't there. Yeah, a couple other big ones, too, that, that opened at other film festivals or are from major filmmakers. Uh, Atlantique, which I believe opened in Cannes and, uh-huh. and got quite a bit of attention there. The Nightingale, the new Jennifer Kent film, you know, the director of The Babadook. Yeah. And this film looks really interesting. A Hidden Life, the new Terrence Malick film. Yeah, that, that was one I was hoping for as well. Because in the past, we have gotten premieres of Malick films at BIF. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping this year would be the same. Uncat Gems, the new Safdie Brothers film. Yep, that, that looks there. really good. Uh, there's also a, a film called Mountain, starring Jeff Goldblum, which looks really interesting. And so, yeah, I, I guess I was a little disappointed these films didn't appear. But, you know, I think we did get a, a pretty cool lineup of films. Yeah. I probably noticed a couple of trends overall in, in terms of the BIF lineup, the BIF program. Uh, liberation seemed to be a big theme. Personal liberation. Yeah. Uh, particularly, you know, in the form of, like, romantic relationships, forbidden love, mm-hmm. things like that, uh, as well as, uh, I guess, you know, some more overtly political films. Societal liberation. Yes. Yeah. But liberation overall seemed to be the big theme this year. I think there was probably less, you know, content directly about politics, maybe kind of reflective of of maybe some exhaustion or exasperation with, yeah. with politics in, you know, the what is it, the third year of Trump's uh, presidency? Yeah. So, you know, maybe I think because it is such a political time and and political discourse is so intense, maybe we're witnessing a slight, you know, political fatigue or fatigue with with that sort of content. Uh, There were were definitely still some political moments and definitely ones that were pointed towards Donald Trump. Definitely, definitely. Definitely. And just kind of social instability in general, I think, was just a big theme. One that I was uh, hoping would be at Biff, but I knew was a long shot right away, was The Irishman. Oh, yeah. I mean, that I wasn't necessarily disappointed it wasn't there, but I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if? Because right. I knew that it was going to be at the, the New York Film Festival, which opened before Biff. Right. Those two festivals intersected with each other. Right. So I just thought, maybe, maybe there's a chance, because Netflix movies do come to, to Biff. Well, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Netflix was, was at Biff in a pretty big way. Spot on this year. They killed it. They really did. Yeah. Uh, as I guess you could argue they did last year with Roma. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I didn't see Roma at Biff, right. knowing it would be released on Netflix uh, shortly thereafter, but if I had seen it, I think who would have instantly declared it the film of the year, because yeah. it, uh, it was such an amazing film. That's right. Do you want to go uh, start with our top ten? Yeah. Or, sorry, top five. Yeah, I can do top ten. You want to do, do top five? Let's let's keep it with top five with honorable mentions. <laughs> top five with honorable mentions. Okay, fine. My uh, my top five is the is the Syrian documentary, The Cave. Oh, I love this. That's movie. that's the first one that I started off with. This is about a um, a female manager of a hospital in Syria, uh, in a town kind of the outskirts of Damascus, and she's mainly a pediatrician. She's also the manager of a hospital, but she's mainly a pediatrician. And this is a part of the city or a part of the country that is just getting bombed to hell by the government. Yeah. They are seeing government bombings multiple times a day, every single day. And they're, they also mentioned seeing Russian warplanes yep. and stuff like that. Russian warplanes. And, you know, a lot of times, like, because it's a documentary, this, this is basically the hospital's a bunker. It's a very complex series of tunnels that— A.K.A. Uh, the cave right, in the, the title cave. of the film. Exactly. But, of course, you have to enter the cave from somewhere. Right. And so there are parts of it that are above ground. And, you know, if you're bombed— you're screwed. Like you're, you're like there might be rubble and debris everywhere, and you're just stuck underground. Yeah. And so that's a constant threat that they live with. It could be a little traumatic for some people. There's lots of images of wounded children here and wounded people in general. But I imagine yeah. the wounded children would hurt. You know, would uh, would hit harder. It certainly yeah. did for me than other people. Definitely. Um, but yeah, just the the stuff that she goes through, whether it's the sexism of people. There's one point when someone says, well, like, get get me a man who knows what he's doing so I can yeah, talk to him. Yeah, a woman shouldn't be a general manager. Exactly. And, um, you know, just, but, you know, just also the camaraderie that's, uh, that's a part of the, the people who work there. And it just what a, what a fantastic woman she is. She's just incredible. And and the doctor that she works with, yeah. who comes to her defense when that man is criticizing her. Yeah, and there's a really sweet moment where they're sort of... Um, kind of at a loss for what to do and they're really confiding in each other and really having a moment together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, that, was, that was my number five mo- movie. Uh, very powerful documentary, very moving, and just terrifying. terrifying. Directed by uh, Faraz Fayad. Yeah. 
And he also did a couple documentaries on Aleppo. So he's covered the Syrian conflict mm-hmm. in, in, in some detail. And I was also a huge fan of this documentary, an incl- incredibly powerful and moving film. Uh, my number five was a little bit different. Okay. I chose Gloria Mundi, which All right. is a French film that's kind of about the gig economy. It's about a family that's torn apart by having to, I guess, get by in an economy that's, that's a lot harsher and a lot harder to kind of survive in. I mean, one guy is working as an Uber driver. Mm-hmm. Um, a mother is working as a, a, a cleaning lady and having to deal with the fact that a lot of her coworkers want to strike, whereas uh-huh. she just wants to you know, make money and, and right. stay afloat. She just wants to provide for her family. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, you know, her daughter is working at a clothing store with a very strict manager who will you know, barely let her go to the bathroom. Uh, there's just all sorts of characters. There's a couple that owns a pawn shop, and they're just ruthless with the people who come in pawning stuff. And of course, you know, with increased sort of economic disparity and increased poverty, there's more people coming in. So a pawn shop is a very profitable business. But they make it clear that they are like happy to kind of exploit the poor to to make a living. Directed by uh, Robert uh, Guidignon, or Robert Guidignon, uh, who actually came to the screening afterwards. Oh, good. Uh, that was both good and kind of disappointing oh, because, really? um, as happened in other screenings, they had a French to Korean translator, uh-huh. but they didn't have any English. So ah, it was right. hard. My French is terrible, as yeah. you can tell by the way I just pronounced his name. <laughs> um, so I could pick out random phrases and words, but really couldn't get much of you know, of the deep meaning of what he was saying. Yeah. And uh, that was a little disappointing. His wife and, the, and, and uh, you know, one of the main actresses in this film came as well. And it was just a very kind of, I guess, Loachian sort of tale, a, a, a story that Ken Loach might portray on the big screen, uh, which is a film that kind of conveys, you know, deep empathy for the working class, has a lot of just basic humanity in terms of what people have to go through how humiliating it can be working in the gig economy, and how little social safety net is left for a lot of people out there. Um, Overall, it just creates empathy on the part of the viewer where you are forced to realize how hard it is for a lot of people to get by and how cycles of poverty just can continue endlessly. Well, it sounds like a very important movie for our times today, especially if there are a lot of people who are in this sort of work. Absolutely. And there's there's a really great character, too, that uh, spent a lot of time in jail and is just getting out. And um, the way that his story kind of unfolds is incredibly moving and powerful and just kind of really a reflection of how tough it is out there for a lot of people uh, in Europe and, and really everywhere. What you mentioned about the guest visit sort of reminds me of my experience at the press conference for the opening film, which was The Horse Thieves, Rose of Time, because... The, the director was Kazakh and the, the other one was uh, Japanese. And so they were getting, you know, Korean questions translated into Kazakh or Japanese. But then I had the audacity to ask a question in English. <laughs> and I shut down the press conference for a good two minutes oh, while they wow. were sort of trying to figure out what I was saying. Right. I just, I sort of broke the press conference for, for a little bit. And then they totally misunderstood what I asked anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that it is, it is a luxury. It is a convenience to have something translated into your yeah. language yeah. when it's not the native language of the land you're in. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I do think it would help Biff overall if they had that option available because the majority of people coming from other countries, their common language is, is English. Right, you know? right. And that is kind of the go-to for them. I, I mean, a lot of the students uh, from, you know, the Asian film school that I talked to were, you know, they speak in English. Yeah. And, uh, you know, other film critics that I met. So I think it would just be helpful, but, I mean, it is a luxury. It's, it's something you have to be appreciative of as well. I think the, the Busan and Film Festival are all fine, but they should work a little bit more on the international part. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> the international in, in that, in that uh, name needs a little bit of work. Yeah. Uh, my number four pick is a French movie directed by Céline Siama called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Ah, yes. This was the winner of the Screenplay Award at Cannes earlier this year. And it's the type of movie I realize lately I've just been eating up. Um, I really love these movies 
about relationships and the relationships between people. And that's why I think I really loved Lady Bird because it was a movie about a girl and her mom. Right. And I really love The Favorite because it's a, sort of a, a three-way kind of relationship movie, but, you know, two people competing for the attention and affection of, of someone else. And just these movies where it's just it's people um, just really getting to know each other and just exploring the psychology of these characters. That's why I really like Call Me By Your Name and Portrait of a Lady on Fire is kind of in the same vein as that. This is a, uh, a, a movie of forbidden love in what I think is something like 18th century France. Right. Right. I think it's right. about the 18th century. It looks kind of uh, French revolutionary, revolutionary. I guess in the uh, in the costumes that they're wearing, uh, but yeah, it's just it's the the story of a the the romance and the relationship between a painter and her subject, right? And she, the painter, is summoned to this island in the middle of nowhere, right? What I imagine is probably somewhere in the Mediterranean. Uh, it's off uh, Brittany, actually. Okay, so it's in the, the the northern coast, and yeah, the 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 subject is just really kind of mysterious and sort of closed off, and things happen, and they they. Uh, their relationship grows, and it, it, it's beautiful. The only downside about this, uh, and I'm not, it's not like I'm not docking scores for it because it's not its fault. It's the festival's fault. There was a glitch in the subtitles. Oh yeah, we every, were at the same screen. We were at the same screen, and every six or seven lines, the the subtitle was unintelligible garbage. Right, including the final line of the movie. <laughs> I know, which I know. Unlike yours, my French is actually kind of good, so yeah. it didn't bother me because I I. I I understood what the final line of the movie was, but the final line of the movie is quite dramatic. Right. And there are a ton of people in that movie theater who it was lost upon. But it, it, I just, I really love the relationship of this movie. The costuming w- was excellent. Um, the setting was so cool. It's just largely just in one house. Yeah, and by the ocean as well. And by the ocean, yeah. Uh, the use of music was great. There wasn't a lot of music in it, but when it was used, it was beautiful. In particular, the ending. Mm-hmm. So, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is my my number four. I really love this one. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's kind of, I think I described it to you as like a meal where it's very nutritious, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily love eating it. The word you used to describe it to me was austere. And that's that's still how I feel about it. Okay. I, I felt it was quite austere in terms of the framing. You know, it was often very close and claustrophobic. Uh, the very lack static. of music. Very, very static. static. It reminded me in a way of, uh, say, Robert Bresson mm-hmm. and the way that he often frames his films. Very static, uh, sometimes slow-moving, uh, not much use of music or, or sound design. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's austere. Now, you mentioned its you know, uses of music were very dramatic, and I totally agree. There were two times, I think, where they used music. Yeah, that's it. And both to great effect. I just would have liked to have seen more, I guess... Um, craft at work in terms of like I guess maybe a little bit more dramatic uh, music cues okay. or some more sound work right? Um, maybe a touch more sort of surrealism or, or visual flair in the film um, I realize I'm kind of just asking for a different movie than the one I've seen. <laughs> well, because I know you're really big into surrealism and things like that Yeah, like that's just that's that's a preference thing Well, I, I I like a movie like, say, France. It came out a few years back by Francois Ozon. And uh, I really love that movie because it's, it's very melodramatic, and it's a very touching love story. Uh, I suppose I just had a little bit of trouble emotionally connecting because the movie was so austere. Yeah. I found the acting was fine, was great. The direction was, was great. It just left me, I suppose, a little bit cold. And it may be one of those movies where it, it's ahead of me, and I would have to go back and rewatch it to fully appreciate it. It's almost like going back and listening to like Bach or Mozart or someone yeah, like that, yeah. where it's like, I do find a lot of that music very austere. And I would gravitate towards someone like Beethoven or sure. Liszt or sure. you know, modern composers like Schoenberg. And so... I guess it's it's ultimately just a preference thing, and I don't have a lot to criticize the movie for. Uh, so... I'll just add my two cents there. Uh, my number four is actually Ilya Suleiman's It Must Be Heaven. Okay, good. You, you went to check that out. Yeah. All right, good. And I was really looking forward to it. I had a friend recommend his films uh, a couple months ago. I'd never really seen much of his work. Now, he's a Palestinian filmmaker. And I, I sat in this film not knowing exactly what to expect. I knew it was kind of a travel movie. I knew that he appeared in it as the main actor. 
Uh, I knew that uh, Gail Garcia Bernal would make an appearance, and that's about all I knew about it. Yeah, yeah. And what I got was a very sort of uh, surrealistic series of, of vignettes. Um, it really reminded me of some of the stuff you might see in a Louis Buñuel film, mm-hmm. where you know there'll just be kind of like this this visual idea or this visual joke that that plays out. It, it's it's very kind of dry, witty or dry wit that's portrayed, um, and also very surrealistic. And I guess I just really appreciated the charm of this movie. I mean, you know, there were moments where he, um, I think he's in France. He's just constantly traveling all around the world and just kind of finding, I guess, both similarities and differences between the countries he visits. And there's a moment he he goes to France and he just there's this one moment where he's looking out from his hotel room and, and suddenly all the streets become empty. And then you see this guy running down the street and then there's a moment of silence and then you see like three cops chasing him on segways. Right. And there's just something so ridiculous about that. That um, the the image of this Segway, right? That's yes. what's ridiculous about it. Yeah, yeah. and um, I guess I, I found it very charming, very well done, uh, and I guess ultimately his message seems to be, or what he what he seems to be getting at, is the idea that there is this kind of hidden thread uniting a lot of society. There are, there do seem to be similar aspirations, but they're they're not tangible they're not directly accessible you have to kind of work to get at them and while there is kind of a hopefulness in the film i think there is also kind of a sadness in terms of the fact that you know that that common thread uniting humanity might not be something that a lot of people can recognize or get at right and you know there's this great shot at the end of the film where he's just looking he's at a bar and he's just looking at a bunch of younger people dancing and in that one shot, I think there's both kind of like a recognition that the future generation has a lot to offer. There is an optimism there, but there's also that distance between him and them. He's sitting apart from them. He's not talking to them. He's not part of that dance they're doing. And that right there, I think, gets at the theme that as a Palestinian filmmaker, I mean, it just makes so much sense. Separation, distance, but also hopefulness and aspiration is such a large part of of what's fueling the kind of desire for Palestinian independence and statehood. And I think, uh, you know, everything is summed up in this one scene where he's talking to a fortune teller, and the guy says, hmm, okay, well, Palestine will exist someday. It will be a state, but not in your lifetime. Right. And, again, there's that hopefulness combined with kind of like the separation, you Mm -hmm. know, the the distance from that, the, the alienation from that. And yeah, fantastic film from Ilya Suleiman. You will not see anything like it. I'm very I was very pleased this year by the representation of Arab filmmakers yes. in this festival because I find that that was something that had been lacking in the last few film festivals because I'd be right. looking through the book and thinking like I don't see any Arab movies here. Right. You right. know, and I was just I was pleased to see that, you know, with uh with The Cave and with uh, Haifa Street, which is one of the movies that won the New Currents award. Yeah, I saw that one too. Yeah, good, good. I'm glad that you did. And uh, with this one as well. So I'm, I'm yeah. very pleased to to see that cuz that was something I had was I was hoping for. And fun fact too, I saw Mike Figgis standing outside uh after the screening. Oh, that's right cuz you interviewed him once on 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 my radio program. Yeah. That's right. I I did see him in uh he was at my screening of The The Truth. Nice. Yeah, but nice. I didn't get to, I didn't get a chance to speak with him, unfortunately. I didn't want to bother him, but it, just a fun fact. Did he recognize you? Did he see you? I don't know if he did. He was on the phone, uh. and I didn't want to <laughs> embarrass myself probably, right. by going up and and yeah. uh, hey, you know. Do you remember me? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, on to number three. We're getting into some really elite territory right now. My number three is Les Misérables. Ah, uh, yes. That one. Did you see this one? I did. Okay, I was at good. the same screening You were at the you. same screening as me. Yeah, this is my number three movie. This is not the traditional story. This is not the Victor Hugo novel. It's not the, it's not the, the musical or the opera. Uh, this is a, a story that takes place in the same neighborhood where Victor Hugo wrote the original story. There are still very miserable people in it, but it is not the original you know, don't let the title fool you. It's not. It's not the original work. Yeah, and the director of this is uh, Laji Lee. Yep. I think. Yeah, um, and this is one. This is what France is going to submit to the Academy for their choice for best foreign language feature. Ah, okay. There was discussion of whether it was going to be this or Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and they settled on this. It's going to be. Wow. It's going to be Les Mis. Now, whether it'll get the nomination, I don't know, but that's what France is going to uh, going to be sending. This is kind of. 
in similar vein to Do the Right Thing. Yeah, from especially 19- the ending. Yeah, from 1989. Uh, a really good examination, a really intense and surprising one that keeps you on your toes the whole time. Examination on the cycle of violence in a rough neighborhood. So are are there rough people in this rough neighborhood because the cops are so awful, or do the cops have to be awful because that's the only way they can maintain control? That eternal debate. That internal debate, and, you know— that e- eternal debate. Eternal, excuse me. Yeah, that yeah. eternal debate where, you know, you might think you have the answer, and that, you know, you might have the answer from your own experience of what you read, but the way that it's portrayed in the movie, it makes you wonder. It, well, it, it makes you wonder as far as in the context of these characters— that yeah. are that are here. It does a good job of of showing both sides of you know because there is a cop who is a total pighead, right? Right. There is there are some people in the the rough neighborhood who aren't very good, right? Yeah. So I mean there are there are heroes and villains on both sides, and so they do a really good job balancing that in this movie. And the ending is phenomenal. Yeah. The ending is, is amazing. It's it's really something to to see on the big screen. Yeah, I was at the same screening as you for this, and I would say that I I really enjoyed this film. It was Uh very powerful. One critique I would have of this film is I think a situation like this, there's always going to be good people on both sides. Yeah. Uh, Neither one, I guess, neither side has an easy, I guess, approach to things or has it easy in general. I mean, the cops have a have a tough beat to patrol. Yeah. There's only three of them. There's only three of them. And there's an entire neighborhood of people. Right. Uh, what I wish I could have seen in this film is more of a, an idea of the systemic issues that are creating this mess in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, mass migration. You know, why is there mass migration? Why are people living in such poor circumstances? Why are they unable to find work? Uh, you know, like all of these things are not really addressed in, in a meaningful way, and I wish they would have at least made an attempt to kind of hint at them or, or point to some of the reasons. It's a largely Muslim neighborhood. Yeah. And they do make it a point to tell you that it's the Muslim Brotherhood that helped to clean up the streets yes. sort of themselves rather than, than the police or the city right. or even the nation. Um, so, I mean, that it does go into that a little bit. It shows you why people gravitate towards the the citizens in that neighborhood because yeah. they feel like they're more protected by them than they do the police or more protected by them than the mayor for instance yeah and you do get a real sense that like particularly from from some of the the mothers in this film that they're so sick of seeing their kids you know constantly monitored and yeah. harassed and and stuff like that uh, it had a real training day vibe in terms of like a rookie on yeah. his first day just being way in over his head. It's training day meets do the right thing Yeah, together. Yeah. That's what this movie is. Absolutely. And I think it's definitely worth seeing. I think you might feel unsatisfied with the spectrum, I guess, of, of you know, society that this film portrays or, or at least how deep it digs into the reasons why things are the way they are but it's also you know there's a limited amount of time yeah it's a specific genre of film uh which is very much a a a police uh, from the police's point of view though you do get the other side represented yeah so you know given what it is i think it's a very impressive film and definitely worth seeing Uh, and it does a good job of um showing you sort of a a time of unity in paris and then showing you how split that neighborhood. Oh yeah, that's is. a beautiful uh, contrast. It's, it's a beautiful contrast. Uh, so that is my my number three pick. And for what it's worth, one of the three cops is is black, and he might also be Muslim himself. Like they yeah. they do sort of bring in. That's what I mean by the balance. They do bring yeah. in uh, people from the other side, and they mix it up. And so it's. I think it kind of helps to humanize the people too. Yeah, and just also thinking about his psychological struggle too yes. whereas like he's both an outsider and an insider yeah and you know the the feeling he must you know what he must go through every day there's got to be a lot of tension there in terms of i guess how he navigates both of his identities as a police officer and also someone ostensibly from this community yeah let's go to your number three my number three is actually not a new film it's from 2005. Okay. There was a special program on Asian female filmmakers that I wanted to check out as many as I could. I only got a chance to see one of them, but boy, was it amazing. From 2005, Water by Deepa Mehta, the Indian-Canadian filmmaker. This is the third part of her trilogy 
on basically events in India, um, Indian history, and and uh, really focusing on women in what, Indian history. Were the first two parts Earth and Fire? Yeah. Okay. I asked that kind of as a joke, but it, it actually was. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, Earth, Fire, and Water. <laughs> nice. And this one is really focusing on the plight of widows mm-hmm. in India. I, I think around the 19, 1938, I believe, is when it's set. Yeah. So it, it's prior to, you know, uh, the, or it, it's still during the British occupation. And I guess kind of during the rise of Gandhi as well. So you have women who are widowed are basically forced to live separated from society to renounce all, I guess, social pleasures and live basically as outcasts. And this is a real, uh, I guess, shocking portrait of what these women go through. And I say shocking because this film allows you to think for the first hour that you're going to get a Merchant Ivory sort of romance story Uh where you have, you know, a beautiful widow who is plucked out from her group and rescued by this handsome, rich guy, and you think they're going to have a, you know, a beautiful wedding and it's going to be a happy ending, and that does not happen at all. All right, so they really just uh, throw you a curveball. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the story really begins by following this young girl as you know, she discovers that this guy that she was supposedly married to has died. She's now a widow and has to be cast out from her family and, and live amongst this group of widows. But then you meet all the other widows, and including this, this one you know, beautiful woman who you know, meets this guy and you think she's going to get married, and then things just really take a turn for the worse. It becomes a, a really heart-wrenching story. I mean, it is 2005 when it was released, so I think I can spoil some of this. Basically, um, he finds out, or she finds out, that his father is someone that she has been prostituted to. Ah, right. So she cannot marry him yeah. because of, uh, I guess, that aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, the shame involved. Um, she tries to go back to kind of her group of, of uh, fellow widows. They will not accept her back in. She has left the community. Right. They're not supposed to marry. She has, you know, kind of violated that one sacred law. She's burned all her bridges. Yep. Mm-hmm. So she kills herself. Right. And the the fallout from that um, just is, is so heart-wrenching. And then there's this little girl in the mix of all this, where she's just experiencing so much trauma, you know, seeing this happen. And the movie ends with, in such a touching way with this other widow and the young girl going to visit Gandhi as he speaks. And just uh, he has this great quote where he says, uh, I used to think that God is truth. But now I realize that truth is God. Mm. And that seems to have so much resonance in terms of the social changes happening in the film. What yeah. the film is, is kind of representing about Indian society, where in the past people had clung on to you know, interpretations of texts that really repressed women and just put them in such a state of, of oppression. And, you know, the line that truth is God, the idea that that by going against the norms, the conventions of the day, you're actually doing something good. That's a higher level of spirituality. It's such a such a liberating message. And despite the movie kind of having so much hopelessness and being a portrait of, of, of really devastating loss, it does end in a really powerful and moving way. Is the ending at least a little optimistic? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, it is. Well, I mean... It's it's bittersweet. Yeah, of I'll, course. I'll put it that way. But um, I, I can't say enough about Deepa Mehta's uh, accomplishment here, and I was so glad I got to see that uh, as part of this program. Uh, so even though it's I guess not technically a new film, it was new for me. Right. And that's why number three for me is Water by Deepa Mehta. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, you know, we're just ranking our top five that we saw at Biff. Doesn't have to be you know top five new movies. It can be any yeah. any movie that you saw at Biff. And I guess it was a major oversight on my part that it had taken me this long to see this film. Well, there are so many movies, it's impossible to see all of them. That's right. (laughs) Uh, What's your number two? My number two is The Two Popes. The Two Popes. This is directed by Fernando Miralles. He's he's Brazilian, so yep. I mean, I'm not really sure how he pronounced it. It's, it seems like a French name, so it seems like it should be Marais. Uh, but uh, Fernando Marais, I guess how I'll refer to him. Um, he did City of God as well as The Constant Gardener. And this is this is a Netflix picture. This right. is a Netflix picture that is, that is coming out. This got a lot of uh, praise, I believe, at Telluride earlier this year. 
and I imagine it will be one of the one of the movies nominated for Best Picture when all is said and done at the Oscars next year. Mm-hmm. And like I said with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, this is another movie, uh, the interpersonal relationship between two people. Yeah. And this is Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, who is played by by Anthony Hopkins, as well as the current Pope Francis, played by Jonathan Price. Right. And it is sort of a passing of the torch movie. Uh, Benedict is uh, sort of you know, try, letting letting Francis know that he would like him to be the, the the next pope, and they're so different in ideology, and it's just such a pleasure to watch them argue and bicker, but also develop a bond and develop a friendship. Um, it is funny. It is entertaining. I would say out of all the movies that I watched, I watched seventeen movies at Biff. It is the most purely entertaining movie that oh, okay. I watched at the festival. This one was the, absolutely the most purely entertaining movie that I watched. Uh, it's heartwarming. It's fun. It's beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a movie that gets a little political as well, but it just shows you how things that happened in Argentina in the 1970s are still relevant today. You know, United States, different parts of the world. So it's a movie that really resonates through throughout time as well, yeah. throughout time and space. Um, really examines human and political problems too. And you know, I'm I'm not religious. Right. I'm not a religious person. I'm I'm atheist. And I I could watch these two to discuss religion all day. You were fascinated by their was, theological conversation. I was I was fascinated by their theological conversation and, and their discussion and their outlook on life and in God. I love to hear it. Yeah. It's great. They they definitely seem like people I, I'm not Catholic enough to really know their policies. I do I do know the basic sort of Benedict was really conservative and not really good for people like you know, gay people and Francis is kind of the opposite mm-hmm. but it it portrays them both in in a way that I think is fair or came across as fair anyway. Yeah. And I really appreciated it the I come from an acting background and the the chemistry between Hopkins and Price is fantastic and the way yeah. that they go back and forth between five different languages or something they go the Latin and the English and the Italian a little yeah. bit of German it's just marvelous marvelously acted yeah so this was the the most purely entertaining movie I watched all festival was the two popes and it's a Netflix film so you'll be able to watch it soon yeah I saw this towards the end of Biff and may have been suffering from a bit of burnout although, when I watched it although see I watched synonyms as at the very last movie at Biff and uh, I thought if there is a movie to watch towards the end of Biff it should be the two popes because it's, yeah. it's light and it's entertaining it's a lot of fun so I, I mean that's, that's you, you felt burnout well I felt burned out by that point when I was watching it and I suppose when I get more tired and burned out I want to see a film that's thrilling. That's uh-huh. more like Climax by Gaspar No, which is a movie that we talked, you know, endlessly about at last year's bit. Right, right. And what I got out of The Two Popes was a marvelously acted film. Uh, as you said, the, the chemistry is fantastic. The technical prowess that they exercise in terms of speaking different languages, Jonathan Price. Having this uh, this accent, this he's, yeah, he's Welsh. I know. <laughs> I mean, his his accent is impeccable in this film. Yeah, and Anthony Hopkins as well. I mean, he's totally believable. Yeah. Um, I guess I was not very compelled by the subject matter okay. of the film, and I found its aesthetic kind of. I don't know. There's this way of making films, which, uh, what was that movie, Darkest Hour, about yeah. Winston Churchill? That's right. Yeah. It's um, from the same writer as Darkest Hour. That's right, yeah. yeah. And there's a way of doing history which just kind of makes it, um, I guess, safer or more digestible, uh-huh. which I don't find as compelling as movies which really get into the nitty-gritty and you know more of the darkness of that time. And, you know, this movie did have, you know, a lot of conflict in terms of the political struggles in Argentina and whatnot. But I guess I just found it a little uh, safe in some ways. Uh I wish there would have been more. Okay, there's a perfect moment that I can illustrate this. Okay, sure. So uh, there's one moment where, you know, Jonathan Price confronts Anthony Hopkins with the fact that, hey, there's been this huge uh, sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. What did you do about it? And he said, well, Anthony Hopkins says, I basically had the documents on my desk and I didn't really do anything about it, you know? Yeah. I failed to live up to my responsibility. Right. Moments later, 
they're leaving, and the only way Anthony Hopkins can get out is by walking through a huge throng of people. Yeah. They all surround him and start taking selfies and pictures, and, uh, you know, his bodyguard goes up to intervene. Jonathan Price says, no, let him have this moment. You yeah. Know, let him appreciate this. And it's kind of this heartwarming moment, and I'm thinking, did you not remember what he just said? In that? <laughs> <laughs> he just said he let a whole bunch of child rapists get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, there's, that's when the formula of kind of taking that sort of history and fitting it into a three-act structure with, you know, dramatic rises and tension and whatnot, when you kind of cram that history into that dramatic formula, you have these kind of absurd moments like that. Sure. Where it's like, well, now he has to seek redemption, so we have to shift to that. And I guess, you know, moments like that, I, I make the movie kind of unsatisfying for me. Sure. Like you wanted a little bit more consequence for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, I guess <laughs> maybe because I was so tired, but that moment just really stuck out to me as being kind of absurd. Yeah. You know, just that dramatic turnaround where it's like, well, you know, now he's taking <laughs> selfies. Everything's fine. I, I suppose maybe uh, they do show a little bit of remorse and repentance from, from the Benedict character. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, maybe it's sort of, you know, you're supposed to... It's I mean it's a small comfort just saying it right now, but I, like, yeah. I don't know maybe maybe you as the viewer is supposed to accept that he he realizes he really screwed up, and but given where like, he again, starts, like a really little comfort. Yeah, yeah. I mean there are, I guess there is dramatic movement in terms of he starts off being so unable to admit he did anything wrong. Yeah, and then he opens up a little bit at that moment. I guess maybe it opens up the door for the potential of him rectifying this problem. Yeah, but Benedict's dead now. Right. So I guess it never happened. Yeah. Well, um, anyway, <laughs> moving on. What was your number two, Tim? <laughs> uh, my number two was a very controversial choice. I know, you know, I talked to a lot of people who had seen this movie and opinions were extremely divided. Mine is Pablo Lorraine's Emma. I, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> it was my, it's for the, for what it's worth. It's my number nine. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a wild and, you know, kind of crazy movie that is about a couple who are part of a dance company. They adopt a child. They return him basically to the orphanage after he does something wrong. The, the giving up the adopted child kind of creates a crisis in their relationship and the woman, Emma, goes on this kind of rampage of, you know, sexual liberation. Uh, she has a flamethrower. She starts setting a lot of things on fire. I mean, it's just, um, it's a wild movie. And yeah. uh, what I loved about this movie is that, narratively, it's very experimental. I mean, it seems to take place, if you could imagine... You know, taking a music video and the aesthetic of a music video as the setting for a film with, you know, music videos have just extreme lack of consequence for anything. There'll just be random shots of someone like setting something on fire and nothing happens as a result of that. Right. Yeah. It's just pure affect. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the setting, the world that this movie takes place in. And I think in a way what he's doing is both trying to take a look at the, the generational divide between, say, people his age and the younger generation. I mean, this movie is full of, uh, of reggaeton music. And um, it's, I think for him, that's kind of a marker of a, a generational shift. Um, as well, I, I think he's just trying to portray a world where all the worst instincts and, and trends of today kind of just create this totally nihilistic social environment where, you know, youth-obsessed, power-hungry sociopaths get what they want with zero consequence for any of their bad behavior. All right, so that was your your second favorite movie of the whole festival was Emma. Yep. The second favorite. Um, this was the movie that I was anticipating the most, or the one that I was most looking forward to, and that's because Pablo Lorraine made my favorite movie of a couple of years ago with Jackie. Ah, right. Like I said, I come from an acting background, so acting is really something that's capable of really lifting an entire movie for me. And the the performance that Natalie Portman put on in Jackie was just spellbinding. I, I loved it. Right. I loved it. And that's a movie that was really elevated for me. So this was my, my number one most anticipated movie. Uh, however, as far as my personal rankings go, it is number nine out of 17. And I guess... 
I found it a little bit wanting in some areas. Some people that we went with, they had a problem more with the, the moral question of it. The lack of consequences for... Yeah, the, the lack of consequences. And that didn't really bother me. The, that personally didn't bother me. I, you know, in my studies at, at theater school, we would read a lot of weird, messed up plays. Right. And these plays would take place in kind of their own worlds with their own rules. And certainly you're reading this and you just think there's no way that people ever talk like this. There's no way people actually behave like this. Yeah. But because of the world of the play, that's how they that's how they do behave and talk. And this movie kind of reminded me of one of those plays. Right. It kind of reminded me of something like that. So, I mean, I guess I was exposed to that sort of thing. It was a it's a really messed up movie. Emma is really messed up. And I just sort of felt like I needed a shower after it. I just <laughs> it felt it felt gross. I felt gross watching it. Yeah. Um. And overall, I thought just, uh, I guess kind of the writing seemed a little bit um, unfocused hmm. as well. And that was just something that I felt to be a little bit dis, uh, disappointing as well. Um, I was a little, I don't know, I was a little unclear on some of the plot points as to what the, the overall grand plan was and who was quite involved in it. Um, so that's why it kind of uh, was a bit lower on my rankings. But it has been rising since the festival ended. Right. Because, you know, I had been keeping track of my personal rankings and my reasons for these rankings, um, which I've been measuring on a bunch of different things, mm-hmm. uh, all throughout the festival. Like, I was just starting from day one. And this one started off quite a bit lower than it is now. Okay. And so upon reflection and upon further thinking of it, it is firmly, solidly in at number nine. So it still makes my top ten, but it's out of 17. Uh, it, it's visually striking, visually yeah. gorgeous. Right. And the use of music is really amazing. Yeah. And uh, the Emma character is really interesting, the way that her hair is just bleach white and looks like a helmet. It doesn't move. Yeah. And, you know, I, there, there, there were a lot of things I loved about Emma. Uh, certainly isn't in my top five, though. Yeah, I I suppose just to quickly respond to some of the things you're saying, I guess I I guess you know the the writing and the weaknesses say in the the plan that Emma hatches to kind of get back her child, which is the majority I think of the movie's narrative. Uh huh. It it was kind of ludicrous in a lot of ways, but again, I I kept kind of referencing that back to the aesthetic of the film which I think it is kind of taking place in what Pablo Lorraine imagines you know the younger generations I guess sort of social coordinates are and you know those social coordinates don't really involve things like um, strict moral consequences for things uh-huh. if you're growing up in an environment where you know whoever screams the loudest wins where, you know, cancel culture or, you know, like toxic online behavior can destroy your life. Yeah. Then perhaps you are more accustomed to seeing, you know, lack of consequences for people uh, who do incredibly bad things. Um, Power and image and, I guess, style seems to rule the day as opposed to kind of like morally upright behavior and conscientiousness and, uh, I guess you know just just being a consistently good person and so i think it's more of a reflection of just the worst of what generation z or or especially the millennial generation uh has been going through and i guess i appreciated the same way i appreciate say a clockwork orange Mm -hmm. where you just kind of uh, indulge in the the glory of Alex Alex's evil. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's certainly not a safe movie. No, and I can see a lot of people on social media having a big problem with this. Yeah, and that's I guess that's part of the thrill of this movie is that it is kind of quote unquote dangerous. Yeah, in yeah. some ways, I, I find that very satisfying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess we can just leave it there. It's it's definitely a movie I want to think about more and try to really figure out because it is quite mysterious and challenging. I actually I, I mentioned this to some people. Uh, you were a part of a part of these people. I, I I said that I would like to see it again. Maybe it's a movie that would work better if I were to see it again. And you brought up some good points, or you know the people I was that I was with and saying, well, you know, it's not like there are like, hidden secrets in it. But now maybe that I know what to expect, mm. I might be able to appreciate it better. Perhaps. And some movies are like that, I think. Some movies you kind of have an idea about something or no idea, and it sort of takes you by surprise. But then when, once you watch it again, 
you might be able to appreciate it more. And I have a feeling like Emma might be this movie for me. Yeah, and I will acknowledge I was a little disappointed in that I was hoping it would be a climax level, just like grab you by the throat. Yeah. Like absolutely shocking, <laughs> thrilling sort of movie. It wasn't quite that. It wasn't that. It was a lot colder and, and, and you know, I guess more deliberate in terms of the yeah. the pacing and stuff. But Well, how many movies are really so balls to the wall like Climax, though? You can't really yeah. say that about many movies. That's a high watermark in terms of just theatrical experiences yeah yeah uh all right so now we're going on to our number one if i'm correct i think we both have the same number one i think so uh it is the new netflix movie which like i said netflix is killing it yeah with uh this year with uh, marriage story starring um scarlett johansson and adam driver in particular also starring laura dern and alan alda and ray liotta right. ray liotta's in this too and directed and written by the criminally underrated noah bombach Yes. Um, one of those people where whatever he writes is so good. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to ever be in the top, the the discussion of the top people. Yeah. For some reason. And if he if he wasn't before, I think Marriage Story should certainly put him there. Because this is a movie about the total, it's an ironic title because it's about the, the d- total disintegration of a marriage. Yeah. And it starts off when they're already on the outs. Right. And things only get worse. It's supposed to be an amical divorce, and it just gets more and more hostile uh, as the more the movie progresses. And this is based off of his real experiences. With uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah, right. It's kind of a good companion piece to something he did in 2005, The Squid and the Whale. Mm. That's a divorce movie from the children's point of view. Right. This is a divorce story from the adult's point of view, from the parent's point of view. So they're good companion pieces. But divorce, obviously, very, very personal to Noah Baumbach. Yeah. And before I saw this, I said Two Popes was my favorite, was my favorite movie that I saw at Biff. But then I saw Marriage Story and something that Two Popes does not do. And that's why it's not my favorite movie that I saw at Biff and Marriage Story is, is that Marriage Story gives me, gave me such a visceral reaction when I was watching it. There are times I just felt awful. Yeah. I felt awful watching Marriage Story. And there are times I was really deeply touched as well. Yeah. It hits you on all the levels. And in that sense, the writing, and particularly the acting, specifically by Adam Driver, is superb. That's a word that I will Fantastic. use. Fantastic. The movie is superb. This is the best performance I've ever seen Adam Driver do. It's the best performance I've ever seen Scarlett Johansson do. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson has uh, a monologue that is just fabulous. It's a fabulous monologue. And um, the chemistry that they, that they have together, it's kind of ironic that in order to portray a couple that is fighting all the time you have to have good chemistry with yeah and they have phenomenal chemistry together they work really well they're such a believable married couple right and um the way that noah bombach seems to fully understand the things that you say to hurt people right and the way that you can say something and immediately regret it really if you have if you have gone through a breakup if you have gone through family drama like this if you really have someone in your life or people in your life with whom you just cannot get along but maybe you wish you did this is a movie that will really punch you in the gut um and and just like it did me the way he's able to write the escalating levels of of Mm. you know mistrust and or distrust yeah you know where it's he's constantly kind of digging they're tearing away at the foundations of their trust. Yeah. And just ramping it up step by step in a very logical way where by the end of it, you know, the whole foundation of what they had together has kind of been uh, torn apart. Yeah. It's it's such an incredible accomplishment. Also, it's worth mentioning that divorce is something that has been portrayed in film and TV and popular culture so much. It's such a widespread phenomenon. Yeah. If you haven't experienced it, if you you know haven't gone through it yourself, you know someone who's gone through it, who's experienced it. Yeah. And to make something that's so well known and it's been covered so much seem so radically new and shocking is a real accomplishment. I mean, it is. I never considered all these aspects of divorce. I've and never seen it um like I I liked how you used the word ripped apart. I've never seen a relationship so totally and utterly dismantled like this yeah and he's so good at finding those trigger points where you know like you said he knows how to write dialogue uh, how to make characters say things that really hurt yeah it's also incredibly 
well done how he's able to balance out the portrayals of, of both Adam Driver's character and Scarlett Johansson's character. It mm-hmm. would be very easy as you know a man writing a movie about a divorce to kind of take his side. And a lot of the movie is kind of on his end of things. But he really balances out the characters and, you know, their their motivations to the point where there's no villain in this. You know, they both do stupid things and they both do things they shouldn't have done that give the other person, you know, reason to kind of carry things a step forward. But at the end of the day, it's messy. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to unravel and it's complicated which is you know what divorce and and breakups and and all those sorts of things are yeah and to kind of represent that and portray that with its full range of complexity is such an accomplishment and um it just goes to show how strong his writing is and has become yeah he's definitely someone who has mastered his craft yeah noah bombach has really mastered his craft Regarding um, how you, how you make divorce seem new, in a, in in a way, you know, I often you know, when I, when you see divorce in movies, mm-hmm. it's usually one party really wants it and the other party really doesn't, or maybe they both really want it, right? And maybe they regret it later or something. But here, there's a really subtle sort of undercurrent of neither of them really want it. Yeah, and maybe that's been done before, but I don't think it's ever been done so well. Right. As as in marriage story is that no matter what they say, no matter how they act, no matter the things that they're doing, it kind of deep down the impression that I got was is one of those sort of this is one of the reasons that it's quite a heartbreaking movie. It's like, why why are you guys doing this? Yeah. You know, you, you very clearly don't really want to do it. You and, both love each other. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the nuance for me that really resonated is that, you know, Breakups can be for very, you know, very real reasons. They could be because of infidelity and things like that. But sometimes it's just a relationship that isn't working out. Yeah. As much as you're trying to make it work, it just isn't. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's maybe the hardest kind of relationship to see come to an end or to be a part of. It's just one where you just think, like, why isn't this working? Well, that's what makes it heartbreaking. Yes, exactly. They love each other. Yeah. And they have... Uh, you know, there's so much goodness in the relationship. Mm-hmm. There, there's so much, you know, to to appreciate. And yet it can't work out. Yeah. They just can't make it work for various reasons involving, you know, their career and mm-hmm. and not being on the same page yeah. in terms of where they want their lives to go and, and their work-life balance and so many other things. And I guess to to convey that dynamic very well between like loving each other but it being impossible. Um, I, I, I you know it's been a long time since I've seen a story of impossible love portrayed in such an American way. Mm-hmm. You know where he really gets at say like what it's like to live in New York at least to be like fairly well off in New York, right, right, and L.A. and I don't know. There's something very American about this story. But it doesn't pull any punches at all in terms of, you know, what it's like to go through divorce um, or just a breakup in general. Uh, what it's like to slowly see the, the person you love slip through your fingers, yeah. you know, and and lose them. But there is, you know, there are grace notes of of kind of optimism there, which I think, you know, keeps the film be- from becoming absolutely hopeless and depressing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, overall, again, I, I've used the word superb to describe marriage story, and that is, that's what I think about it still. Yeah, it would be hard to imagine this not being in my top three of the year. Yeah, it's, you know? it, it's in mine for sure. Uh, maybe even the best one. Yeah, yeah, it, it could definitely be my, my favorite movie of the year as well. Um, so far, I think the best three movies I've seen this year... Uh, unusually, even though I saw 17 at Biff, uh, so far it would be Marriage Story, Joker, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Those are my top three. Yeah, those I might see. be mine too. Yeah. Um, well, listen, before we go, uh, do you want to just do a quick rundown of our top five just to yeah, review? So, yeah, so my top five were from number five to number one. Uh, my top five were The Cave, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Les Miserables, The Two Popes, and Marriage Story. Those were my top five at this year's Biff. And my top five uh, was Gloria Mundy at number five. Number four, It Must Be Heaven. 
number three, Water from 2005, number two, Emma, and number one, Marriage Story. Good. And I'll also give a quick shout out to some honorable mentions that I liked. Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire yeah. is, is one that I really liked that yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, the Cave, a documentary from Syria. I really enjoyed that. Which I also mentioned. Yes. <laughs> Dogs Don't Wear Pants. Uh, one you didn't mention, <laughs> yeah. but one that I really liked. Good. Um, also, I would mention a movie called Synonyms, which I know you weren't a big fan of, but I enjoyed that one, The, the uh, Golden... Bear. Bear at bear. Uh, Berlin yeah, this right. year. And I, I enjoyed its kind of French New Wave freewheeling style. Another movie I know you didn't care for too much, but I enjoyed its weirdness, Little Joe. Yeah, that's right. So those those last two movies you mentioned were my two least favorite of the bu- <laughs> of the bunch. <laughs> Synonyms and Little Joe. I didn't care for either of those. Uh, all right, well, if the honorable mentions go, uh, I'll say the new Koreda movie, The Truth. Mm-hmm. I, I, that was a good, uh, solid family drama. Um, I, I think I liked it even more than, than Shoplifters. Okay. Um, Shoplifters, maybe it was one of those where I think I might have watched it and I just wasn't fully in the mood for it. Right. Uh, Deerskin. Uh, it was just awesome. Yeah. Very short at 77 minutes, as it should be, but it was it was really good. And then um, a movie heavily inspired by by Ingmar Bergman's persona, Psychosia, a Danish-Finnish co-production. Ah, right. Uh, but, you know, it did enough on its own to warrant respect. Right. So it wasn't just a remake or a ripoff. Right. Persona. So there you have it. Those are our top movies at this year's Busan International Film Festival. These are movies that you should definitely keep an eye out for for when they are out either in the festival circuit near wherever you are or when they come to, to movie theaters or when they when they come on to streaming yeah, in some way. Yeah, Marriage Story will be yeah. coming up pretty soon, I think. Yeah, Marriage Story and Two Popes as well on Netflix. The other Netflix movie that I watched was The King, and that was fine, but, uh, you know, it, it, that was the weakest of the three Netflix pictures I saw. Right, uh, right. It was The King with Timothy Chalamet. Well, Tim, thanks so much for talking to me about Biff. Yeah. I, I miss it already. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Uh, we look forward to talking about it again, hopefully yep. next year. Don't forget to like and subscribe to us on YouTube at Now It's Dark. And remember, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. And until next time. <laughs>